Has there been like a place in your life, a location that you have these memories from that you say, oh, when you think about like the goodness of life, the goodness of relationships, there's maybe a location or a place that, that maybe comes to mind. Well, I want to tell you about a place. Here's the address. It's 1165 Montmartre. And uh, that's where it is. It's in Duvernay-Laval. And uh, that is the house that I lived in from the age of eight to the age of 19. Now, it was a split-level home uh, in Duvernay-Laval. And uh, you can go to the house if you'd like. And so, so they, they renovated. It didn't look like that when I was living there. And the garden didn't look as great. And there was never a red door. But that's what it looks like on Google this morning. So I just, I, am I allowed to do that? Is there a privacy issue on that? Am I going to get arrested? Is someone going to break open the doors? Anyways, but, but that's where I lived from the age of 8 to the age of 19. I lived in that place. And, and as much as I could remember the decor and the design and the split-level uh, home that it was, as much as I can remember that, here's what I really remember. I remember uh, evenings or weekends where my older brother Rick, who lived in Toronto as a 19 and 20-year-old and then into his early 20s and later got married, him and his, his wife would come and like late night show up really late. Sometimes my Uncle Joe, who lived in Toronto, he would come and they'd show up at 11 o'clock and we'd literally stay up till 1.30 in the morning in the kitchen just hanging out and talking and having a good time. Some of the things I remember is I remember my friends sleeping over, like literally destroying our basement. Uh, craziness. Imagine like 10 teenage boys in a basement. And uh, my mom was patient. I can't believe she let us do that. But I remember that. I remember some, some international guests that would come from different parts of the world that would speak at our church. And we'd often have like Sunday lunch with them. And we'd be sitting around the dining room table talking with these people from different parts of the world. I remember, and this is like really, foreign to some people we would uh, we didn't it's not like we planned it but they kind of happened spontaneously almost like these these sing-alongs that's so weird I feel it's weird like who does that but we not okay I didn't do this often don't don't like peg me in a weird way but but when there was a bunch of people that were all musical and they were hanging around my living room I don't know somebody got on the piano someone had another instrument someone sang and it really became uh, an amazing time and and I, I can remember at 11.65, Momat's like late night snacks. And for me, that meant like bread, cheese, tomato sauce, and sausage. That's what that meant. And, and it just, you know, just kind of like whatever's in front of you, you're eating. And when I think about that location, it was life, it was wholeness, it was joy, and it really marked me. We're in this series called Irresistible, and we started a couple of weeks ago looking at the irresistibleness of Jesus how incredible he was. And last week, we looked at irresistible faith, how the early church, really shaped by a faith in Jesus, moved forward with such boldness. And today, I want to turn to one more irresistible feature that I believe God longs for us to experience, and he, it's part of his plan for those who follow Jesus. And it's the idea of community, the irresistible sense of community. Now, something happens when people meet Jesus and then step into a life of faith in Jesus and both fueled by Jesus, something happens. And what happens is, is that those people, and many of us know exactly what that means, start growing into a community because the, the life of faith and the life of following Jesus was never meant to live alone. 
And the way God was going to shape the world and speak to the world and, and, and announce his kingdom into the world was never by just one individual or an isolated kind of people all over the place. It was a community, an ecclesia, an assembly, a family of, of, of the family of God working together. And so the early church historian Luke, who we read from last week in Acts chapter 3 and 4, as he writes the history of the church post the resurrection, he paints this vivid picture of how these first Christians shared life and faith together. If you skim through the book of Acts, and we're, not gonna, we're gonna hit a different uh, text this morning, but if you skim through the book of Acts, you will see the word together come up often, especially in Acts chapter two, when, Paul, when, when Luke describes what was happening among these first Christians. But the word together described their community. The word fellowship, which we might use the word community, but the original word is koinonia. It's not just a social circle. It's not just a social club. It described intimate, deep, uh, a united community that they shared with one another. I emphasized an awkward noun last week that the early church were sharers, right? I said that in an awkward way. They shared stuff with each other. This community that Luke describes shared their resources with each other. They didn't let people who were in need stay in need and it went beyond themselves. It went beyond the circle or the community that they were that others got blessed by that. And Luke describes a unity of faith, a unity of purpose, a unity of prayer and breaking bread together. And as this first church grows, something extraordinary happens and it begins to take shape. As the church met in both large settings like the temple, but in smaller settings like living rooms, these living rooms had a mixed group of people, the rich and the poor, together talking, interacting, but out, where out on the streets that rarely happened. Where slave and free or slave employee and employee, or in even more rougher terms, they were together in this living room, this, these house churches. They worshiped together. They learned together. They served together. Men and women together, learning together, growing together. At times, the poor who were not treated well in society were treated with dignity in these living rooms and these house churches. Slaves were not bossed around. Women who often weren't honored in culture were honored and encouraged to use their gifts in these house churches. And children were protected and valued. They, some of these living rooms or houses had these, these, these common closets that when the church gathered together, if someone needed a shirt or a pair of pants or something they didn't have, they'd go to this common closet because they would collect this so other people who had a need wouldn't be left with that need. And this common closet was, was one of the historical pieces of these home churches. They'd often have these collections when they heard that their friends or communities in other cities were struggling with something or a famine broke loose and they would collect funds to bring that out, to send them out. This is what the early church was like. And something radical happened is that the love and support that was happening inside these communities started to be tasted, experienced outside their communities as well. So these Christ followers would go and spend time in a community of lepers who no one wanted to touch and be near, but they started to bandage their wounds. And these Christ followers would end up, when, when often it was difficult and maybe costly or too enormous to be able to try and bury uh, some, some of the dead, these Christians would want to give dignity to these people who died and they would bury the dead with dignity. 
They would rescue baby girls that were often left in garbage dumps because society, and sometimes in that kind of culture where they viewed the help of a man on the, on the farm or in business or whatever, more, sometimes little baby girls were left to the side and these Christians would go and rescue these baby girls. They'd often feed the hungry in the Roman Empire that the Roman Empire left behind. So they were doing far, they started to do more for the Romans than Rome was doing for the Romans. Rodney Stark, who's a historian, he says that their faith and their fellowship was so powerful, the church multiplied from 120 disciples and over 200 years grew by 40% a decade. 40% a decade that the church grew over 200 years. I don't know what to call that except that was an irresistible community. That was an irresistible group of people. So Jesus and faith, yes, irresistible, beautiful. But something about how these first Christians lived their lives in community that made them uniquely irresistible. There were these people who were taking notice of God because of the kind of life that these, that these Christians were living, the kind of life that they were extending to other people. And so the question is, well, where does that come from? Where did that start? Where did they, where did they model themselves from? How did, this, how did this begin? And I want to take you to a passage in John chapter 13 that, that was pegged by um, the gospel writers, Jesus saying something so, so extraordinary, they called it a new command. They called it a new command. Here it is in, in, uh, in, jo- in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to it. It's going to be on the screen as well. And, and here's, what, um, here's what Jesus is quoted saying in John's gospel. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. God, as we just allow this, these words of Jesus to be a springboard for us today, we, just, we want to be present to how you want to shape our hearts, how you want to shape our church. And even some today that maybe are searching for you, God, how you want to help them see something so powerful about who you are and how you work in people when they come to know you. God, we just pray for that, Lord. Even in our own imperfection, we pray for this in your name. Amen. Here's Jesus, right? A new command I give you. So simple. Love one another. I mean, we want to like elaborate on that, write books about it, um, thesis projects. Here's Jesus. A new command I give you. Love one another. Like, why, why so new? I want you to consider something. There was this shift that was, that was starting to take place when Jesus was speaking, and, and what we now understand, obviously, as followers of Christ, spirituality and religion for the Jewish people was this, was they understood their relationship with God with how they love God and how they honor God, how they obey God. If you go back to Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Moses says, write these commands, these laws, like everywhere so you can remember them. And the, the Jewish people, in a sense, grew by the law. And you think of the Ten Commandments and other things like that. So the Jews really, I think in some ways, understood God by obeying his commands. But Jesus comes and he says something not completely far from there, but something in fulfillment of that. He's like, you love God by loving people. 
You don't just love God by following commands. You love God by loving people. In fact, when Jesus was pressed and asked, you know, can you summarize all the law and the prophets? He didn't only quote Deuteronomy 6 that said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He quotes Leviticus 19 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says all the law and the prophets are fused together in what it means to love God and love your neighbor. So Jesus, who's kind of seen as the new Moses, saying, love one another. Here is the new command. Here is the way we move forward. Here's how God's kingdom works, and here's how we're called to live. Love one another. If you really want to love God, if you really want to honor him, love each other. And Jesus, in a couple of two chapters later, John records that Jesus has one, one of the most beautiful texts. It's this text about he teaches us how to abide in him and how we can remain in him. And in John 15, verse 10, Jesus says this. It's, pre- it's pretty interesting because he says, um, he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. So here's Jesus talking to them about being connected to him, abiding in him. And he says, like it sounds very Jewish. He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. In other words, if you, if, if you want to remain in my love, follow me, obey me, right? But two verses later, he says something unique. He actually says, well, here's my command. What does he say? Love each other as I have loved you. At first, it sounds like if you want to stay in my love, follow my commands. That kind of sounds like love God by obedience. It's like, here's my command. You want to follow me? Love each other as I have loved you. What else is so new about this is that not just love one another, because love wasn't a brand new term, But Jesus tells us how to love one another. In fact, in verse 13, in in this chapter, he says, no greater love has anyone than this than to lay down his life for others. He's pointing to the cross. When Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another, he adds, as I have loved you. Here's the new piece to this. Jesus shows us how. Jesus shows us what it means to truly love one another. And he shows us the way. He shows us what it looks like. First and foremost, in the climax of the cross where he he dies under Roman rule for the world. That's love. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the big picture of love. But he doesn't just show it there. He shows it as we read the Gospels and he stops for people and has compassion for people and as he, as he weeps with people, as he sacrifices for people, as he spends time with people, as he gives value to people, we see Jesus loving one another and we get a sense of what that means when he tells us, love one another as I have loved you. But then he says this. He says, this is actually how people are going to know that you're my followers. It's not just a new command. It's actually a new characteristic. It's actually a new way of understanding. This new command moves to this new characteristic. And kind of like, if you can, I think I put that up on the screen as well, that kind of look there. When you think about a family, I don't know about you, but have you guys had like awkward, anybody grew up in an awkward family? No, here's some pictures of a couple of, uh, you know, I mean, this, maybe they're dated. Does the 70s seem awkward automatically? I don't know. But I was thinking myself, I mean, we're all marked by our families, right? There's things that I do. I can't help but say, yeah, that's my, I'm like, I feel like I'm living my grandfather's life, you know? Or like I'm really, I'm just, I'm acting out like my mother's, my mother's mentality or something, right? And you think about it. Um, yeah, yeah, that's good. We don't just not need to focus on them for a second. But to my kid's detriment... I have heard people say to my kids, 
you're such a manifold. To my kid's detriment, I've heard them say that, right? It's like, my son, I, f- I feel bad for him sometimes. They're like, well, you kind of are like your dad a bit. Like, oh, I don't know if Andrew's really happy about that. And, or my daughter's like, man, you know, like, you know, hey, you're, 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 you just seem exactly like your mom or something like that. Or, or maybe where you grew up, you know, it's like, oh, you're like a typical West Island kid or something like that. We all have these marks. We all have these badges. We all have these kind of these ways that we, we live. It says something about us. And when you grow up in a family, often you're marked by that family, whether you realize it or not. Well, here's what... Jesus is saying when he gives them this new command to love one another as I have loved you, he says this, by this, by this love, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. By this, everyone will know my disi- you are my disciples if you love one another. That is the badge, the mark That is how people know that we are part of Jesus' family, that we are part of this new kingdom family that is in Christ. Now I want to press pause for a second because I know that we don't always live that out. I know that I don't always live that out. I know that there's been times where I don't reflect that the way I could or I should. And, and I know that sometimes we can look back to how some Christians have treated each other in the name of Christ and we can like almost cringe. Say, you did that in the name of Jesus? Really? What Jesus have you met that you would do that in the name of Jesus? Or sometimes Christians have only, they, they've limited the one another in that passage to be like, they just look like me. They talk like me. They sound like me. They worship like me. They have my theological distinctive. Only, I, I'll love them. I'll, I'll love I'll one another with them. But anybody outside of that little circle, no. There was a, somebody said that there was a sign in front of a church that had a, it was a danger sign. And at the bottom it said, nasty, gossipy, irritable people inside. Beware. <laughs> you laugh, but we know that sometimes that's been true. We're like, why is that true? Why are there nasty, gossipy, irritable people sometimes in the church? That's not the mark of this new command. That's not the mark of a disciple. That's not the mark of what it means to be this community. In fact, John records later on. Here's John like years later as he's writing to now the Christians of the time post the resurrection. He's older in his years. Years, a few decades later. And he writes this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 to 12. I want to just put that on the screen. Here's what he says in, in verse 12. He's talking about love and he's talking about how how God loves us first and that's how we can love. And then he says this, he says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In fact, John says, don't say that you love God and hate your brother. Don't say that you love God and treat your sister poorly. Don't say that you love God and you, 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 you can't fulfill, you're not fulfilling this new command of Jesus to love one another. He's, he's saying outrightly, no one has ever seen God. We don't see God physically. But if we love one another, God lives in us. If we love one another, his, his love is made complete in us. And indirectly, I believe John is saying, if we love one another and he lives in us and his love is made complete in us, you know what? Other people will start to see God in us, through us, because it's the mark of a disciple. 
And these early Christians, they started to flesh this out. They started to flesh out, what did Jesus mean by this? How can we live this out? What does this look like on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? What does this look like in the marketplace? What does this look like in my house? What does this look like at school? What does this look like when I'm so irritated by my neighbor? What does it look like when, when I want to just be so mad at my family member in my house and I want to talk to them? What does it mean when someone hurts me? And so we see all littered throughout and I say that in a positive way, littered throughout the New Testament, all over the New Testament, this, this little phrase that pops up. And it, they took it from Jesus. It's this, this phrase, one another. The phrase one another pops up a hundred times or so in the New Testament. Often Paul uses it. We saw John use it. Obviously we see it in the Gospels. And they fleshed out what one another, what loving one another meant. They fleshed it out in real, ordinary terms. And so I, I put a whole bunch of examples on the screen because like this is literally like I, I didn't put the chapter in verse. You guys can kind of find that on your own if you want. That'll be like a good exercise uh, for a Sunday night practice with some bread, cheese, and sausage, right? Uh, anyways, but look, these phrases are all come before the phrase one another. When describing, teaching, encouraging the early church, speak truth to one another. Confess your sins to one another. Be kind to one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Encourage one another. Serve one another. Bear with one another when someone's going through a, a time that they can't bear it all on their own. Greet one another. That seems so simple, but greet. sometimes we get, even need to be reminded to greet one. Hey, Nathan, I'm greeting you. How are you? It's like, sorry, that was, that's what I mean. Pray for one another. Live in harmony with one another, accept one another, instruct one another, be united with one another, submit to one another, admonish one another, hum be, have humility with one another, be hospitable with one another. Here's some good ones. Don't slander one another, in case you forget what love, one, loving one another means. Don't slander one another. Don't grumble against one another. Stop passing judgment on one another and fellowship with one another. Here's this, you can just look through the teachings of the New Testament that's both teaching, encouraging, and describing the early church, and they are trying to wrestle with what does Jesus mean to love one another? It means that. What does Jesus mean to be a community? It means that. What does Jesus mean when someone hurts me or rubs me the wrong way? It means I, I, I grow to respond that way. What does it mean when I hurt somebody? What does it mean when I'm going through a difficult time or someone else is going through a difficult time? It partly means that. What does it mean when I'm, I'm veering off course and someone within the church notices that? They speak truthfully to me in love with one another. All these descriptions. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was trying his best during a time when Nazi Germany had really hijacked the state church and started using the church for its purposes. Here's Bonhoeffer on the side being a resilient resistor and, and, and continuing to nurture the, a local church that was not hijacked by the state. And, and he, he was building this community and he often said, don't be so idealistic of what you think your vision of, of community is. It's, it's active, it's tangible, it's loving one another. And he says these words in regards to prayer. He says, Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercessions of its members for one another, or it collapses. This is just on prayer and intercession, that Christian fellowship lives and exists as we pray for one another, otherwise it collapses. Now imagine for him, in the middle of 
Nazi Germany, in the middle of being persecuted, in the middle of trying to build and nurture and be the church in an era when the whole state was against you, he's like, if we don't pray for one another, we will collapse. And then he goes on to say, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that may have been strange and intolerable to me. Has this ever happened to you with somebody? is transformed in the intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. Here's Bonhoeffer says, when we intercede for one another, pray for one another, we can't hate someone we pray for. How can we? Because as we pray for them, their image, uh, our, our image of them is transformed into a forgiven sinner, one whom God loves, who's a brother or sister. So the question is no longer, what does the law require of me? But now the question is, what does love require of me? The question is no longer, what should I do exactly to love God? We do believe in, in an ethic, in a, in a life that God calls us to. But the question even bigger that Jesus forces us to ask is, what does love require of me? Not just what does law require of me. What does love require of me? Because the law will stop you from killing someone, but the law will never make you love somebody. The law might stop you, you know, from interfering into your neighbor's barbecue, but love will actually lead you to bring them a dish. <laughs> it's a different, different thing, right? To ask what the law requires of us is very different than saying what does love require of us. But I think Jesus is pushing us to the second question, and that changes everything. That changes everything. There's a story that I read, and uh, I'm going to try and read it off, off an e-reader. Um, it's, it's a story. I believe the church is in New York. And it happened at a church one Sunday morning where this author served as the pastor. And he's speaking about a, a woman named Anne who shows up. And from the start, it was clear that her life had been shredded by hard living. Anne explained to our greeters that she was in recovery from heroin addiction, to which the, needed, the needle streaks and scars on her arms gave witness. She was barely 30 days sober. The people at the rehab center had encouraged her to add religion to her life because religious involvement tends to decrease the odds of a relapse. So she decided to go to church. On her way to the worship time, Anne dropped her two boys off at the nursery. When she returned after the service, a woman named Jane broke some bad news to her. So during the service, Anne's two boys had picked fights with several of the other kids and had broken some of the toys. And humbly, Jane said to Anne, I'm so sorry to tell you all this, but I, I thought that as the boy's mother, you would just want to know. And impulsive, impulsively, Anne responded by screaming an obscenity in front of a hundred or so kids and parents. And what happened next caused my heart to sink. First silence, then an embarrassed, burning blush rising to Anne's face. And finally, Anne talking taking a walk of shame from the nursery and out the door, beaten down, no doubt for the umpteenth time in her life, by the shame and regret and the familiar feeling of failure. Happened in a church. And it would be easy for the church to recover from this, but probably not easy for Anne. So Jane has this idea Jane thought, how can I reassure Anne that she's welcome here? How can I help her know that what happened today is not a label on her? And so she reaches out to her. She writes Anne a note. Jane sends her a letter, and it says this. 
Dear Anne, it's me, Jane from the nursery at church on Sunday. I'm writing first to let you know that everything is okay at church, no harm done, and the broken toys, no big deal. We needed to replace many of them anyways. But what I really want to do, Anne, is I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the way that you wore your heart on your sleeve on Sunday. That meant so much to me because I'm often tempted to hide the messy things that agitate my heart. And I want to thank you for being willing to be honest, for your courage to be honest got me thinking, what better place to be honest than the church? And you reminded me that Jesus invites all of us to come to him raw and real and to do that together and never alone. And so I hope I see you again. And more than this, I hope we can become friends. Sincerely, Jane. And um, that must have inspired Jane because, or Anne, because the next Sunday she walked in to that church almost with this idea like these people are my people and if this is their God, then I think I'm interested in this God too. That's what happens when we ask the question, what does love require of us? And I want us to think about this for a second as we, we wrap this up. Take these two, what I call, pillar teachings from Jesus. Here, this new command, love one another, and the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. You put them together, what do you have? You have an irresistible community. Love one another plus love your neighbor usually grows into an irresistible community. And this is what made the church in the first century so incredible, so powerful. So here's my question as we, we bring this to a close. How can we become this kind of community that we love, that we would love to be? How can we become the kind of community we want to be a part of and one that you can't find anywhere else? That's a question that I want to ask myself and ask us as a church. How can we become the kind of community we want to be a part of and one you can't find anywhere else? I'm not going to list you a bunch of things, but I, just, if we're just honest for a moment, if the book club is more loving than the church, if the martini club is more honest than the church, if the bowling club is more welcoming than the church, right? And if your work gang is more passionate about life than the church is passionate about life, then what kind of community are we? But if we ask this question and plug into following this command of Jesus, this way of Jesus, this life of Jesus, I think something beautiful can happen. And I'm not saying that this doesn't happen here, that now we've got to go from zero to 10. I'm just saying this inspires me to say, how can we continually grow into this kind of community? Here's what Andy Stanley says. I, I love how he put these words. He says, imagine a world where people were skeptical of what we believed, but envious of how well we treated one another. Imagine a world, right, where people are skeptical of what we believe but envious of how we treat one another. And then he says this, imagine a world where unbelievers were anxious or excited, right, were anxious to hire, work for, work with, live next door to Christians because of how well we one another one another and how well we one another them as well. I know that's a weird phrase, right? But right, imagine that, imagine a world where unbelievers would be like, I want to hire them. I want to work with them. I want to work for them. I want to live next door to them because of how well they want another each other, how well they love one another, how well they love their neighbor. There's something so beautiful there. I don't believe what they believe. Uh, and, and, and sometimes the world will be skeptical against us, but imagine they were still so attracted to how we lived out this new way of Jesus. So what can we do? Where can we start? It's not a mystery. I'm not, I'm not going to list a bunch of things. It's not a mystery. 
Next week, we're going to take one whole week to we have the kind of the three thoughts behind this. And next week, we're going to unpack some of the obstacles to, to growing, to really presenting an irresistible Jesus to our world, uh, living out an irresistible faith and community. We'll save that for next week. But here's the simple thing for today. First, simple thing. Jesus already showed us the way. So we don't have to like wonder, like, where, where do we get this from? We can, Jesus showed us the way. Love one another as I have loved you. Study Jesus. Learn from Jesus. Immerse yourself in Jesus. He already showed us the way. Secondly, the first Christians were already following the way. They were wrestling every day what it meant to live, to love one another. We have a hundred examples in the New Testament of what that looks like. The first Christians were following the way, and we see it in history. But here's the simple thing is this, to answer this next question with an action. Just to answer this next question with an action. And the question is this, and it's really simple. I already said it. What does love require? If we want to grow into this and we want to see the Lord at work in the way he longs to be at work in the kind of community, kingdom community he wants to build, what if we just answered this question with action? What does love require of us? What does love require of me? And as you're asking the question, here's what I encourage you to do. Invite the Holy Spirit, who longs to lead us into all truth in life. Invite the Holy Spirit to help you discern which one another you need to act on. So if me and Sina get into a, a fight today, I, I, I should pause and say, Holy Spirit, what one another? What, what do, how do I do that? How do I love Sina in this moment? How can, how can we work? This, what, what does that look like? When you're, going, when you're in, a, in a situation where you want to just uh, erupt, or you might say, well, what does love require me? When you see something that maybe needs your attention, you might ask the question, what does love require me? And, and, and you might just say, like, Holy Spirit, help me understand, discern which one another I need to apply right now. Maybe you've rubbed someone the wrong way in our community. And you need the confess one another with one another. That's the one you need. You need to be kind to one another. You need to, the humility with one another. Maybe you've been hurt, and you need to forgive one another. Maybe you see someone struggling, and you need to bear with one another. Maybe you see a neighbor who's tearing up in front of you, and you're like, Lord, help me to love this person in front of me. And invite the Holy Spirit to help you discern to respond. Which one another does love require of you? Which one another does love require of you in this moment? And here's the beautiful promise, and I'm going to end with this. When we do that, when we do what love requires, when we one another well, here's this promise. Jesus told us already. He promised. He promised that people will know that we're his disciples. He promised that all people will know that we are with Jesus. He promised that people will recognize we're with that guy. We're with him. We're with the one who rose from the grave. We're with the one who, teach, who taught the, teaches the world how to love. And people, here's the other promise that we read from John. People will begin seeing God in your life, in your love for one another. I know it seems so simple. And don't get mad at me. Take it up with Jesus. It was so simple. That's what he said. Now imagine each of us took that seriously and imagine we would love one another and that would multiply 100 times, 150 times, 200 times just with the people in this room. Forget about the churches across the city. What could happen? What could happen when we do that with each other in our groups, in our ministries, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, 
in, in the gym, at playgrounds, at IGA or Adonis, at golf courses or hockey rings? What would happen if we just, if we lived that out? What would happen? Well, Jesus said, you know what will happen? People will know that you're with him. And people will begin to see God in fresh ways. And that's the kind of irresistible community that shook the Roman Empire and changed, changed the landscape of history. Let's stand and pray. I'm just going to give you a moment because even right now in this place, I want to practice this together. Invite the Holy Spirit. There's, there's very likely an opportunity even today, this weekend, right now in your life, this current season, where you can ask this question. It's not impossible that almost every single one of us in this room can answer this question with an action led by the Holy Spirit. And I just want you to bring that relationship, that person, that situation, that struggle, that obstacle, that character trait. I want, I want us to bring it to the Lord and invite the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us right now and just simply ask him, help me discern what it means to love one another and to love my neighbor in this situation, in this season, with this person. And I encourage you to just cling to this question in a prayerful way this week. And if you want the biblical reminders, look up every one another text. Reread John 13 and 15 and 1 John 4 and let this truth sink into your heart and life. And then ask the Lord for discernment in living it out and boldness too. Oh God, we're, we're so grateful. We can only love because you loved us first. And you have given us the ultimate example in Jesus, your son. And we are so thankful because even if we answered what the law required of us, God, we would fall short of leaning into the life that you have in store for us in Jesus. Because there's so much more. And we're thankful that you fulfilled the law. But you gave us this command to love one another as you have loved. And so, God, we ask you, Lord, we long to be this one another community. We long to live this one another kind of life. And may we be people who are marked by love for one another, and love for neighbor. Not just because it's good or moral, because we know it is, but because that's how you have invited us to love you. You've invited us to love you in response to your love for us by loving others. And we want to be that kind of people. 
And God, we trust you with, with what that looks like. We trust you that when, as we grow and live this out as a community and in our homes and in our relationships, God, oh God, we pray that people would not look to us, but that they would say, oh, they're with Jesus. God, we want to be that church that, that continually points to Jesus. And so God will release us in this way. Grab our attention. Keep us convicted and dependent on you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.